Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Thanks, as always, for your patience as I tackle some non-broadcast-related items and still continuing to tune in. It means a lot. Today's show centers around the debt ceiling debate. We give all the details at the top, at least as few of the essential ones, then I give my take on it, and then later in the broadcast, during the guest segment, I speak to our economic and finance editor, John Carney, who is as knowledgeable as anyone on this stuff, and he breaks down all the details and where we go from here. Also in the opening, I give you a thorough roundup of 2024 campaign news. A lot of woke businesses are actually getting a little bit broker, which is really nice. More evidence that we need a border some really compelling evidence, I have to say, and much more in the broadcast today. Let's take a listen. We'll start with debt ceiling. So it's interesting to watch this one from afar and not to broadcast day to day. Definitely one of those news cycles I'm pleased I got to avoid uh, because it's not one where I've got a super strong opinion on and I I feel like I'm sort of feeling my way around it just like I'm sure a lot of you guys are. But uh, it came down the vote uh, yesterday and it is the Fiscal Responsibility Act is what it's called. It passed three. 14 to 117. Now it's going to head to the Democrat controlled Senate and it should pass from there. And uh, both sides are kind of declaring victory. So this is one of these things where there's a huge portion of both parties who aren't for anything. They only want to say why everyone else sucks and everyone else stinks and everyone else doesn't know what they're doing. And uh, sorting out now who's grandstanding and who is actually making legitimate points about faults in bills uh, is becoming very difficult and frankly exhausting and almost, dare I say, boring. So uh, this bill played out almost exactly like every other bill where you've got a guy, Kevin McCarthy, not the most hardcore politically, but I think has done a really nice job trying to reach out to the Republican base, who is in a tripartite negotiation with Charles Schumer and Joseph Robinette Biden. That's the task at hand. And knowing that one false move and the media is going to eat them alive. And so I go into these things with ultra low expectations. Uh, If I had any expectations that a Republican could win a debt ceiling debate, those went out the window when Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan ran on the debt as their centerpiece issue in 2012 for president and got their clocks cleaned by Barack Obama. And then when Donald Trump got in, he raised the debt by, you know, as much as anyone. So uh, it's the neither side is fiscally responsible. Uh, We've committed to this. And unless something crazy happens, this is going to be the path we're on where we're going to cycle through uh, every single time when these bills comes up, uh, we're going to jack up the debt. And if we don't do it, then the media will frame it as though the people who want any sort of fiscal responsibility are the bad guys. And uh, we're going to have to fend off all those people. Now, if you talk to people and this was not a Freedom Caucus versus establishment thing. The Freedom Caucus was divided on this. Um, but the if you talk to some of the more hardcore people in the Freedom, Freedom Caucus, and I did, that they made a couple of cases which were interesting. They were saying that a lot of the alleged spending cuts 
that uh, McCarthy's been touting are not locked in. So we got to keep an eye on that to make sure that those actually happen. Um, the other thing is that they wanted to negotiate again sooner. There's not going to be another one of these negotiations until 2025, um, which I'm kind of cool with because, again, I don't think we win these things. Um, but January 2025 is the next time it'll come up, and that means it's past election day. So it's basically seeding debating fiscal responsibility in 2016. So it's not going to happen. So those of you who wanted to bust Biden on debt stuff, um, it's going to be much harder to do that. We've kind of given away that talking point. I think those are really good objections. But that said, overall, I think that if Biden really liked the bill, he would have come to the table two weeks ago. He didn't because he didn't like it. Uh, McCarthy saying that this is going to save $2.1 trillion in spending. Um, the CBO has scored it. And we'll talk to Carney about the CBO score later. But the CBO has scored it. Not it's not going to be 2.1 saved, but it could be something like 1.5 billion uh, trillion saved. Um, and that is, you know, pretty dang good. That's pretty dang good. So is it good enough? Is it as good as we want? If uh, you and I were president and emperor and we didn't have to negotiate with Schumer and Biden, would we have gotten more? Yeah, of course. But that's not the reality. And the reality is we are a debtor nation. We continue to be that. We're going to continue to live that way because the faith and credit of the American people is still the envy of the world. And so then it just becomes a sort of thing where is this one of those hills you die on? Is this a hill that you feel like, you know, the debt's going up, we don't like debt, and we're going to just ride it out and we're going to assume that the public is going to blame Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden, even though the media will insist that they were the good guys and McCarthy's the bad guy. Um. I can't, I can't get there. I can't get there. I just can't. So I, I don't know if this is a great deal or if it's a terrible deal, but I will tell you this is not that bad. It's just not. It's just not. And anyone who's telling you it is and is telling you to be outraged, um, uh, uh, the, the, I will borrow from the late, great Rush Limbaugh and say, I will tell you when it's time to be outraged. Uh, this is not quite it. If you're not thrilled, fine. But I just, I don't, I think a lot of the outrage is about getting social media clout and getting donors. So uh, not great. This never is great. But I think what's not great about it is what it says about our country. That we're, we don't have anyone who's responsible fiscally is not a value that is shared. And I think that this is something that's psychological too. It's historical. I think that a lot of us live this way in our personal lives. That this is the way America works now is that we live beyond our means. And then when we run out of money, we just figure out a way to get some sort of emergency money. It's not really how it's supposed to be. There's a lot of reasons for that. But that's what we are. It's who we are as individuals and it's who we are as a, as a nation in general. But if we're going to fix it, we're not going to fix it with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden in charge of the Senate and the uh, executive branch. If you have something to say in this regard, I'm happy to hear it. And um, I'm sure some of you in the audience are, have some expertise um, in some of this stuff. So, uh, but anyway, debt ceiling going up, not great, but there seems to be some spending cuts. If those hold, those will be good. And at the end of the day, no one is super satisfied to any good negotiation. Um, I would recommend Slater's interview with Chip Roy yesterday. It was pretty great. Um, I listened to that, got a lot out of it. Uh, Chip Roy is on the hardcore, this is all bad. Everything's bad. Everything is, you know, not good. 
and the Sox. But I thought he was pretty, the way he articulated it was pretty good yesterday. So I won't put words in his mouth. I will instead recommend the SXM app or brightboard.com and um, uh, you can listen back to it. Uh, let's hear, I want to hear what the uh, White House had to say about this. Uh, let's hear, play cut two, please. This is the spokeswoman, Green John Pierre. So this is a conversation that we were ready to have weeks ago. Uh, but it took some time for Republicans to put forth what their budget looks like, or what they perceive uh, their values are, and showing that to the American people. Look, I- Yeah, well, she says nothing. That's why I don't play very many clips of her. And I will let you in on a little secret. I only played that clip because I wanted a sip of water. Now you're seeing behind the curtain. All right, um, let's move on and talk about some 2024 stuff. That's the fun stuff, in a way. It's also getting weird. And I have to say, I have been loving, it has been so convenient for me that not just that I have a bunch of small children running around, um, but that I've been uh, deeply focused on some longer projects where I can't just surf the web all day because the conversation online in conservative circles right now is not helpful. We are seeing influencer wars. Now, Ron DeSantis, for better, for worse, and uh, maybe for better in the long run has been a lot of time building up a stable of influencers. These are people who are online, who tweet talking points on his behalf. Um, we know some of them are paid because at least one person I know personally has turned down money from them to get paid to do this stuff. And they get coordinated, they get talking points, and they tweet them out, and then it looks like there's this big swell, grassroots swell of DeSantis support. And it's, I'm not saying it's totally bogus. I don't think they're paying anyone who would otherwise not support them. Um, but it, it's a little astroturf. And, but that said, that could be what it takes to win. So I'm not judging it as much as I'm pointing out that if you spend any time on Twitter, or then, which is where a lot of journalists hang out, uh, you would think that there is this massive swell of people who just cannot get enough Ron DeSantis. Um, so Donald Trump takes to true social and he just starts ripping everyone's faces off because that's what Trump does. Because if you cross Trump, it isn't just that Trump wants to beat you, he wants to eat your soul. So I think people people know that, and he's willing to say pretty much anything to get to the soul-eating part. So Trump's latest people he's attacked, um, he has claimed that DeSantis did a worse job on COVID than Andrew Cuomo. Now, this is one where even my hardest core people in my email in the Breitbart newsroom um, have told me that they, they, they didn't like that one. They thought because obviously Cuomo was the worst and a lot of people died because of him. And DeSantis did very well and opened up the country relatively quickly. Now, is is DeSantis as good as the DeSantis camp has been touting? No, he hasn't. He was pro-Operation Warp Speed, he was pro-vaccine, and he was pro-lockdown for a small amount of time. He was one of the quickest to get away from that stuff, which is commendable. In fact, it's worthy of praise. But every side is, you know, we're in a campaign here. So we're just getting some oversell. Um, but of course, Cuomo was much worse. But Trump says this stuff. And for whatever reason, so many people have forgotten the one rule of Trump, or at least the first rule of Trump. Don't take Trump literally. You have to take him at, uh, what is he doing with this? Uh, he is throwing a wrench. And he is trying to get attention to things he wants to get attention to. Um. So I found it actually sort of amusing because it's sort of so absurd. You could almost picture Trump coming up with a talking point. Like, hey, let's praise Cuomo. And then you see all the people who are the joyless journalist crowd online 
just uh, uh, doing the uh, Monday morning quarterback stuff where they say, oh, look, uh, Trump is going for the uh, Cuomo vote of the Republican primary. Ha, 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 ha. I'm so clever. It's not really what he's doing. He's trying to draw attention to the fact that Santis isn't quite as good as the Santis people are touting because he got the jab. He got the J&J jab too, which is not the one um, I would have recommended if any of you had asked me what I was hearing. And then he did have some lockdowns. He locked down. He was on the beaches for a few minutes. And then he came off of them, and that was great. And that was brave of him. I wrote about this extensively in Breaking the News, about how the media coverage was so unfair to him. And it was praising of Cuomo, who let all these old people die on his watch. But uh, DeSantis acting like that he was perfect and Trump was terrible is just is just too much. Just too much. Uh, Trump did a, a very imperfect job on the coronavirus, but he did a lot of stuff right. And I think that a lot of people are going to try to pile on with really low IQ talking points. And I got a feeling that's going to happen. We're going to see this one. The science people like this talking point. They really like it. And so that's going to continue. So Trump throwing the wrench. Does it work? I don't know if it works. But I know it's not to be taken at face value. Um, Another one, to my point earlier about the soul eating, is that he's now been attacking Kaylee McEnany. So he's called her Kaylee Milktoast McEnany. So Kaylee, who was Trump's press secretary, um, but works for the pro-DeSantis outlet known as Fox News, um, is, I guess, trying to walk the party line or the company line a little bit too much for Trump's taste. Now, I've tried to look into what Kaylee's been saying. I I don't really follow Fox. I don't really follow her very closely. It seems like she's been kind of calling balls and strikes. It doesn't seem like she's taking a strong side one side or the other. If you've been watching and you disagree, please call me 866-95-PATRIOT. But she took a lot of slings and arrows for Trump, and she was beloved by Trump's audience. So this is another one where Trump fires it out there. And whoa, my email fills up. How could Trump be doing this? I think this is so bad. I think this is so stupid. Now, for the record, I personally would not have done this if I was Trump. I would not have attacked her. I think she's likable. I think the base really loves her. And I think she did a good job for him. So that said, he's sending a signal. And I'm hearing the signal. I'll tell you that. It's coming through to me. that He's not joking around. He's trying to be president. He doesn't want people in his way. And if he sees you as in his way, he's not playing by the Marquis of Queensberry's rules. He's going to take out his special um, a Trump-engraved, embossed knife and fork, and he's going to eat your soul with it. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, is the, this is the proverb, he's the proverbial F-around, find-out candidate. So this is the dare, the double dog dare. He's daring the DeSantis people. Like if it, you got to out Trump me, then if you want to beat me, you got to out Trump me. Out Trump, Trump. Good luck. So uh, I am curious if you have a perspective that differs from mine. I, I'm just popping corn at this point, and I am thanking my lucky stars. Actually, I'm thanking myself that I'm fairly committed to not hanging out on Twitter all day. Because I think the vast majority of the country doesn't really care about this stuff. But conservative Twitter, it is just nonstop back and forth over Trump and DeSantis. All right, uh, Chris Christie's going to run, apparently. He's going to announce next week. Are you guys looking forward to that? 
This is um, it's a big move. It's a big move for him. I'm really happy for him. I think it's going to be great. I think he's going to do a great job. What commentary can you add? He missed his moment by over a decade. I have no clue who his constituency is. I don't know on the right who likes him. He's a loose cannon. He's a did not have a great record as governor. Um, he's certainly not a MAGA person. He's attacked Trump relentlessly. I know he put out a book. He had a two-book deal. And I did the first book, and it sold nothing. Almost no one bought it. And people aren't interested in him. So it just reminds you of how anyone who runs for president, you're dealing with an ego that is so vast, so overwhelming, that it's almost hard to comprehend. And because of that, then you get sometimes these people who have absolutely no chance of winning, and yet they feel so important that they might do it. They might run. And they will run. And sometimes that preternatural self-confidence actually gets them some votes. Uh, the most recent example of that is a, you guys remember the John Kasich campaign, where that guy never had a chance to win, but you know he really carried himself like he should have been president. And I, I, he never made a case why he should be president, but sometimes it works out. Uh, Mike Pence also is going to get in. He's going to get in next week, apparently. So um, I like Governor Pence a lot. I think he's a good man. Um, I think that he became a punching bag after January the 6th for illegitimate reasons. I know that'll be triggering to some of you in the audience, but uh, there is absolutely no way that the vice president can just choose not to certify an election because uh, they're really unhappy with you know, the, the, the new COVID voting rules. Uh, and, and if that was the case, it wouldn't be good for us because you can bet that if a Republican wins in 2024, Kamala Harris is not going to be certifying that election. You can bet it. Remember, they did four years of a pure hoax that Russia rigged the 2016 election. And then we learned, you know, just like two weeks ago, they didn't. So uh, if that rule is in there in the Constitution. We would have learned about it. We would have learned a long time ago. Um, for a vice president can cancel any election. They feel like it. Um, so he'll be in. So it's, if you have any thoughts on the shaping up field, I, I I will say I dig something that Vivek Ramaswamy was doing as usual, who's doing really well in a few polls. Um, and he's calling out a, a Twitter and I'm a Twitter CEO Elon Musk for pandering to China. Uh, Musk got busted really bad um, recently by doing a lot of business inside of China and going over there and being celebrated. And, you know, he's a plant for Tesla in Xinjiang, the province where the Uyghur genocide's happening. And he's just been being hailed as just the future there. 16 course meal, tweeted like a king, doing a bunch of goofy dance moves. He sells and makes tons and tons and tons of, of Teslas there. So it's nice he pays lip service to free speech here in the States. I, I dig it. But I very much am skeptical of his overall worldview. Um, Vivek says, Elon Musk's recent comments are part of a broader pattern of U.S. CEOs pandering the Chinese Communist Party in return for favorable access to the Chinese market. Amen. 
This is how the CCP turns American companies and executives into geopolitical pawns. The CCP dangles business benefits in return for prominent corporate executives speaking out and behaving in a manner that advances the CCP objectives globally. Love that stuff. Absolutely love it. Um, Musk called for peaceful reunification of Taiwan and China. That is absolutely offensive. Taiwan's own country should not be part of China. And even if you like his tweets, even if he's unfurling some dank-based tweets, doesn't mean he's right on some of the biggest issues of the day, especially China, which pays him a lot of money. The value of Twitter has now plummeted to the third of Musk's purchase price. Though, I don't really know that matters for him, but he paid $44 billion, um, and now it's basically... A toy you paid $44 billion for that's worth, you know, $15 billion, whatever it is. So he has not cracked the code. I laid out this impossible task for him on Twitter. He has to somehow make the platform palatable for advertisers, and he needs to make it a free speech platform. Uh, doing both in this moment where all these companies are obsessed with diversity, equity, inclusion, trans this and trans that, social credit scores. Um, that is going to be a very tough, very tough thing to do. Yeah, this is a fun one. Uh, this is a, the White House was asked why we haven't banned TikTok yet. Let's play cut three, please, Zach. Why hasn't TikTok been banned yet? Look, as you know, there's a CFIUS review. I'm going to just leave it there. That is, it's being reviewed by that, uh, by that committee. And so... Uh, the president thinks it's an important issue to deal with, but I just don't have anything else to add beyond that. That's nice. If the group that uh, approved the sale of our uh, uranium to Russia, 20% of our uranium that Hillary Clinton was overseeing. Nice. Yeah, they're, they're trustworthy. Um, it's hard not to get into some of the trans stuff. Probably the whole show on it. I, I, I will start with my word of caution. That so long are as there are these social credit scores that are going out, as long as there are these point-based systems where the woker you are, the higher you score, we're going to continue to endure this stuff because people aren't thinking go woke, go broke. They're thinking go woke, get paid a lot of money. And this is why you're seeing stuff like another transvestite man with a mustache in a dress at Disneyland greeting kids. Um, all that stuff is going to be over and over again. We're going to watch that. It is nice to see, though, some of these boycotts seem to be holding. Uh, Target's doing very badly, and uh, that's really great. Um, there's even a song called Boycott Target that's now the number one song on iTunes. So fun. So fun. Bud Light, of course, is getting crushed. Now, the Bud Light boycott, I dig. Um, Tennessee, by the way, has a festival. They have the Bud Light stage, and they're going to rename that. I dig it. Absolutely. Um, the Bud Light one, I, I get how the boycott works. It works because it is very easy to boycott Bud Light because if you go to pick up a Bud Light and you're reminded that they're pandering to the trans cosplay stuff, the grooming of children, then you just walk down the aisle 
six feet and you pick up a Miller Light or a Coors Light. Tastes almost the same, costs the same, looks the same, almost the same. That's an easy boycott. Harder boycotts Target. Target's a harder one because Target's main competition is Amazon and Walmart. It's not great. I'm sure there's some others, but those are the main ones. So I know for me, those are my choices mostly if I need just sort of one of those types of places that's got everything, all the basics. There's no mom and pop shop for me where I can get the stuff you can get at Target. So uh, you're either paying a lot more or you're going to Target. Or I can get stuff on Amazon or Walmart, which I don't really want to support either. So that's the problem. It's a people forget also with Target is that we already boycotted Target for their uh, letting men in women's bathroom things. Remember we tried that before? This is totally, uh, people have missed, totally forgotten about this. We had another big boycott Target news cycle a few years ago where they decided that they'd make the bathrooms gender neutral and non-customers could go in and basically you just have strange people, strange men in the women's room. And they're like, yep, we dig it. And we were outraged then. We didn't boycott, really. So I'm all for it. I think it's great. And the problem is, though, is that the alternatives are not much better. And that's why we still need to work on that alternative economy where we're rewarding brands that do patriotic stuff. They don't even have to be conservative. Just stay out of politics and maybe acknowledge every so often how we live in a good country. Um... There's some hope though. The Target one gives me hope. The Bud Light one, I, I I love it, but I don't I don't I'm not overly impressed. I'm kind of impressed by the Target one. That takes some effort. That seems like their stock is suffering because of the conservatives boycotting. Uh, the CNN of beers is how Nolte is branded Bud Light, crashing thirty percent since May twentieth. Man, that's sweet. Good for you guys if you're a part of it. Uh, all right, a couple other quick ones, and then we'll go to the phones at 866-95-PATRIOT. Here's a good one for DeSantis. The furry conventions are now barring children from events because uh, DeSantis fa- uh, stopped a groomer law. Now, furries is a sexual fetish where people dress up like uh, animals. Like, uh, basically, they dress up like kids' dolls as a sexual fetish. It's a... Uh, you know what I got to do if I, if I ever get a different show that I'm not trying to make a mostly family show where at least children can listen to it. Um, I, I would love to interview one of these furries. Like what is the evolution of this? How does it dawn on you that this is what you're into? Does it start as a joke and then you just end up in this like I'm at a convention for all these people with stuffed animal fetishes. So strange. Uh, but these conventions now are not going to allow children there. Uh, here's the buried lead in this one. Children were allowed last time. So whatever's the next furry convention, just know kids were there last year. This year they'll be banned, thanks to DeSantis. So deciding, deciding an anti-groomer law, they want to be really careful not to make sure any kids get wrapped up in the furry fetish. Very gross. Um uh, San Francisco has launched its first ever video advertising to get tourists back to the city. I was just crunching the numbers on this, and since 
the coronavirus. Uh, the, I was just looking at the Union Square area, San Francisco. This is a place where I used to hang out on weekends when I was at Berkeley. And we'd go into San Francisco, and that's got great restaurants and shopping and stuff like that. At least it did. And since the coronavirus, over there were over 200 businesses in the area, and I think over uh, I think over 100 of them closed down, and only 12 of them restarted. And of those, two others closed down. So it's like ghost town. I mean, I haven't been, but I've certainly seen the videos of all the looting and smashing and grabbing that's going on there. But this is one of those vibrant parts of the world when I was going there in 2005 to 2008. And now it's half empty storefronts. But hey, why don't you go there on vacation? Seems like a great place to hang out. All right, James Comer says the FBI has confirmed the existence of a file allegedly linking Joe Biden to a $5 million bribery scheme. I, I like it, and we'll keep post- posting this stuff at Breitbart, but I have to admit, I have to admit that the Comer stuff is starting to be a little bit like the Durham stuff for me. And I, maybe I've just been burned too many times, but I'm nervous that these stories are going to stay in conservative circles only. I'm totally fine with that. It's still worthwhile. We can just turn over every stone with the Bidens. I'm just worried a touch that we're going to end up missing the point. A lot of what the Bidens are doing is legal. And what needs to be done is actually fixing the system. We have to fix the system so that a lot of the stuff they're doing is legal. Um, and, and that is really what needs to, more important than, you know, bagging Biden, arresting Biden, which is, we know is not going to happen. We need to make it so they can't influence pedal. That as of now, as of today, it is still perfectly legal to make money off of the family's name if your brother or your dad is president without having to disclose how you did that. Seems pretty easy to fix. Should be able to fix it, but don't fix it. So I, I hope Comer keeps doing his thing and we'll highlight everything in Breitbart. Um, but it just, it's got a little bit of Durham vibes for me. Like we're going to learn stuff we kind of suspected, and then nothing will be done. And that is what we need to hold people accountable to. All right. I think I've been in too good of a mood, so I will make sure to end with something terrible, uh, which is five illegal aliens charged with murdering a 15-year-old boy in Maryland. And these things should never happen. Not once. There should never be an illegal alien who kills another American. Everyone should be an outrage. Everyone should be too much. Everyone should be Jamal Khashoggi. We talk about five years later, a quote unquote journalist with ties to Muslim ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, ties to the Bin Laden family, who was bone sawed by the Saudi government. He should not have been bone sawed by the Saudi government, but we talked about that for five years. Now it's a heinous thing. I'm happy to talk about it for five years, but can we talk about the fact that we have illegal aliens in this country committing violent crimes? And murdering a boy, 15-year-old Limber Lopez Funes, and dumping his body in a state park. Never should happen. Not once. Illegal aliens should not be here. And we should have a border intact. We should have means to deport people. We should have E-Verify so the rest of them deport themselves. And then all of a sudden, you won't have to read these stories. Because they'll be impossible. 
And yet we have one and a half political parties in this country out of our two who are bound and determined to keep that border open. This is the result. There's blood on the hands of the open border crowd. All right, I always learn so much from John Carney. I feel like I invite him on sometimes when I need to learn a thing or two about what's going on, and today's no exception. He explains the debt deal and other machinations, or is it machinations? I don't really know. I think machinations, whatever it is, in the economy. Uh, let's hear from John. John, so first one is a big one. What is in the debt ceiling deal? What do you think are highlights and lowlights? What don't we know? What do you make of the CBO score? I just want your, as a expert, Looking at this thing, what do people actually need to know about it? Sure. Let's start with the CBO score. So the CBO said that this would reduce the, the debt by $1.5 trillion. But let's put that in context. That doesn't mean our debt is actually going down. It's going to keep going up. Right. Um, what they are saying is that from where they thought the debt was going, based on what Congress has already enacted, the debt is going to be over 10 years, $1.5 trillion less than that number. Now, of course, all of that is a little fictional because we don't really know what future Congresses are going to pass. So all this is saying is based on what the law is now and where they think the economy is going. This makes some improvement. It lowers the debt uh, over the course of 10 years. So that's good, right? We, you know, that's progress. Um, the bill cuts us mostly from some discretionary uh, uh, discretionary spending programs. Uh, it cuts back some of the extra IRS funding, but again, that can be restored in future years. So it's one of those things that you have to stay on top of. It also imposes work requirements. Uh, for able-bodied people uh, to, who want to get food stamps or uh, supplemental aid for families. This is, you know, that's also the work requirements for able-bodied people without uh, dependents is a good thing. This, you know, when, especially when you have ultra-low unemployment and, uh, as we just learned, 10.1 million open jobs in the U.S., uh, people should have to work at least a decent amount in order to right. be able to, you know, continue to collect benefits. So those are all, uh, those are all good things. There's a promise in there to restart student loan payments. That's also a good idea. Uh, okay. And there's a requirement that yeah. the government, particularly under uh, something called the National uh, Environmental Policy Act, which is from way back in 1970, but it's become a major drag on energy projects where it takes up to four years to get something approved now. Uh, there's a requirement that the government start to get that done a lot quicker, so two years, which is still mind-blowingly long, right? Like, to even get approval to move forward on something you need, you know, you know the government's going to take two years studying it. It should be less than a year, but, you know, going from four to two is progress. 
All right, so so much to get into in there in perfect summary. Um, let's, let's unpack some of it. And I will go, not necessarily most important to least important, but just things that interest me as the host of the broadcast, which is my right. The student loans, John, we talked about this for, it's got to be three years, maybe uh, two and a half years, whatever it is, that we thought we'd crack the code. They're just going to delay student loan payments forever because once those loan payments go back on, um, I was just thinking about my family. Uh, once Mrs. Dr. Marlowe has to start paying her loans again, it is going to completely dry up any uh, excess, you know, the, the discretionary spending. Like it's just going to go in one night, like the second that happens. And that takes money out of the consumer economy and puts it just in the government. Maybe that's Biden's objective, but a lot of families are going to feel the same way. So uh, are they really going to do that? Yeah, so they are going to do it, um, and you're right to think of it in many ways as a tax hike. Uh, it's money that you pay for the that you pay to the government. I like to actually think of it as kind of like a reverse social security tax. We pay social security during our working lives, and we collect payments at the end. Student loans kind of work the opposite way. We collect payments in the beginning, and then we pay them during our working lives. So it's you know it's it's an upside down social security program. And so it's not wrong to think of it as a tax, but in this case, it's actually probably going to be economically beneficial to have a lot of that discretionary spending come out of the economy. I think it's actually been one of the things that's been quietly feeding inflation because people have, you know, an extra, an, on average, sure, absolutely, dollars a month that they can spend. And that, you know, I mean, that's $400 a month is a big chunk of money and that, and a lot of that, and, it, and a lot of that is going to people who, as you were saying, uh, spend it. Right? It's not being saved in some way, or you know, it is a huge portion of it is being spent. And I think what we're going to see is when that comes out, it will be probably one of the things that helps push the economy towards a recession. But it will also be one of the things that helps solve this awful inflation dilemma that we've had. But it's also interesting politically, and I don't like this. I think it's a sign of strength that Biden was willing to give that up um, because it, it's th this is going to affect his voters the most. I mean, those are the people who have the the big loan payments for the most part are going to be, you know, typical Democrat voters, correct? Yes. And so one of the things we're going to see is there's going to be the shock. This is, uh, I, and I agree with you on this, this is a bit of a political problem for Republicans because you're going to have a shock and it's almost like a get out the vote program for Democrats because Biden is going to run on debt on student loan forgiveness. That's harder to do when nobody's making payments. Uh, so it's in right. fact very politically convenient to have the payments restart. Biden says, you didn't like that, did you? So I'm going to solve that problem for you. Uh, and he gets to pin it on McCarthy, right? He says, the Republicans made me do this. I'll fix it. Vote Democrat. So to get out the vote program for Democrat. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. So um, one thing that you mentioned, which I think is sort of the biggest point, is it seems like some of these alleged spending cuts, uh, and again, if, if John was president and I was the Senate Majority Leader, it's, the bill would be much better than this bill. But we, we got this bill had negotiated with Schumer and Biden. Um, the if there's one thing here that you note, maybe not all the cuts are going to hold. Maybe some of them are discretionary. Maybe some of them might get upended 
or intercepted at some point. Explain the mechanics of this and how concerned are you that some of the promises we've been getting made are not real? Sure. So I do think the promises will hold for the next year and probably the next two years. But remember, one of the ways our Constitution works is that one Congress can't really bind the next Congress. So any spending promise is really only good until the next election. And so even though we make these 10-year deals, just like we saw in 2011, look, the 2020 spending that the United States did while Donald Trump was president looks nothing like anything anybody arranged back at the last big debt ceiling debate back in 2011, right? That was none of, none of what we've done actually looks like what people thought was gonna happen in 2011. And so do I think that in 2030, our spending will look like what people are negotiating today? No, I don't. It could go either way though. Again, elections have consequences. So what I'd say is, you you know, the, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, right? We, you can't say, oh, we made a deal and so that's what the deal is going to be. Yeah, we made a deal. That will stick through the next year. Uh, you know, as long as we don't have some emergency, then everybody will say, okay, deal's off. But, you know, if things go normally, that'll stick through the next year. What we're going to have to do is see who becomes president, who gets control of the Senate, whether the Republicans keep control of the House. If the Republicans win, then I, I expect we'll see a much better budget coming out of this. If Democrats do very well in the next election, then things will get worse for us. The, de- the deal won't work. But that doesn't mean it's not worth making, of course, right? It's of worth course. holding the line for now. Right. Okay. So let me ask you about the state of the debt um, at the moment, because again, the deficit's coming down, but the debt's going up and important distinction that the vast majority of the audience probably understands. But just in in case you don't, that's a big deal to consider is that just the debt is going to be going up at a slower pace. Um, John, you have literally coached me it's not even coaching, it's it's teaching. You've given me tutoring sessions explaining why debt is not the end of the world for a country, particularly a country like, like America. So I know your standpoint here is not from a hawker standpoint. Uh, do you see us at all getting to a point where it could be affecting us in ways that are negative because it's just going to get too big? Or do you see it, are you still holding the line, not really a big deal, the amount of debt we're accumulating? I don't mind the amount of debt uh, that we accumulate. And I think actually in some ways we have to accumulate debt. The world financial system and the U.S. actually works very poorly if the U.S. isn't issuing bonds. If we run a, if we're not actually accumulating a deficit, it's not clear that we can really uh, run our economy just because people want an ultra-safe asset, right? People want U.S. government treasuries. So we do want some deficit. That doesn't mean that the deficit should be as high as it is. And if we lower the deficits, that will slow the pace of debt accumulation, and that's a good idea. One of the big problems I have, and I had in 2021 and 2022, and now 2023, is that it makes no economic sense to run deficits as well and therefore be growing the debt as fast as we are in a year where the economy has 3.4% unemployment. You want to sort of save some dry powder so that if you have an economic calamity, if you have a war, if something very bad happens, 
then you can ramp up your debt accumulation in order to deal with that. Yeah, kind Running of the same way you're supposed to run a household, right? Which Exactly, right. Yes, which we're not doing. We're acting like every, no, every day is panic day. Right, we're not, and we're, right, we're treating it as if we can, uh, we can continue to run very large deficits and build up the debt. Now, we probably right. can do that for a long time, but it causes problems. For instance, our inflation explosion is largely caused by our overdoing deficit spending when the economy was in recovery. We would not right. have this Absolutely. problem if we hadn't done this. Okay, um, I've got three questions and I got about two and a half minutes, so I want to go somewhat rapid fire. Last one on debt ceiling um, that you wrote in our Breitbart Business Digest, which we collaborate on, uh, that the debt ceiling is going to pave the road for Fed hikes. Um, the Explain that quickly. Sure. The Fed would not want to hike if it was worried that the U.S. was in danger of not paying its obligations or possibly, although I don't think this was ever going to happen, defaulting on our bonds. So that would have been a constraint on what the Fed's going to do. Now that we have this deal that seems to be in place, House passes going to the Senate, the Fed, when it meets in next week, is going to be able to say, yeah, okay, you know, that's settled. We can go ahead and hike. And look, everything else that's happening in the economy right now, the Fed either should hike in at that meeting or at the next one in July. Uh, connect that to the job openings above 10 million as the labor market's overheating. This is bad news for Jerome Powell again, right? Yeah, that's right. Look, and, and bad news for anybody who wants to buy a house because it means mortgage rates are going to stay very high because the Fed, they build, although it's good news, right, in some ways that you have 10 million job openings, that means there's plenty of opportunity for people to get jobs who are looking. But it also means that uh, there's a lot of wage pressure building in the economy, and, this is, and the Fed looks at this as causing inflation. And so the Fed is going to say, look, we, we're not making as much progress as we wanted in softening demand for labor. We think that's going to be inflationary. And so, therefore, we have to keep hiking. The consumer confidence is falling, six-month low. What does this mean? So, I think that the consumer confidence numbers have become super weird because we have very high levels of consumer spending, but everybody's super nervous and unhappy, uh, which is a odd set of circumstances to be in. I think what, part of this is just a consequence of the fact that they're – very likely is a recession coming sometime in the next year. However, everybody's been being told this for the past year as well. And so therefore we're sort of, you know, it's like the, the, the creepy music in a horror movie, right? You know, something's about to, you know, give you the jump scare, but you're not sure when it's going to happen. And I think that's one of the things that's really weighed down consumer confidence, even though because people have those $400 a month from student loans and accumulated savings from all the stimulus checks, they're still spending a lot of money, even though they're not confident about the economy. So where does that where does that uh, tend to hit first? I mean, what are the downstream effects of low consumer confidence? What 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 are you tracking? Well, so it, it it tends to hit. Although this is a weird exception now, it tends to hit big ticket items, right? The first things people yeah. pull back on is, you know, what I'm not going to buy the new appliance. I'm not going to buy the new grill. I'm not going to buy the new car. However, that's right. Because we had so few cars available, actually, cars are selling like uh, like hotcakes, to use the cliche, right? It, it, you're so, it's so funny because I, I, I got to run, John, because we're out of time, but that's exactly, I'm in that boat. Like, I don't want to spend any more money, and I think I have to get a car just because I have to get a car. 
right now. So it's, it's how the world works. John Carney, wonderful stuff. That's today's broadcast. Thanks so much to Bill Barnett and Zach Jones, our producers, Robert Marlowe, Healthy Pick Topics, and all of you in the audience. If you go to Breitbart.com and share our content, can't thank you enough, and I'll talk to you next time. Got stars in my-